dramatic expository preaching, it means I can't dodge things. So we're not going to dodge anything. So we'll pick up in verse 27 here in just a minute. But uh, as we get started, I, I will just say to you, uh, I don't know how many of you know this about me, but I really am a man when it comes to my free time. I have some divided interests, right? This time of year, it really gets thrust upon me that my hobbies kind of split my affections. You know this about me, that about nine, nine and a half months out of the year, the only thing I want to do is catch a bass. If I got free time, I'm trying to catch a bass. But then there are those times where the morning starts getting a little cool and the leaves start changing a little bit and fall kind of is upon us and it starts to shift and I'm kind of like, you know, I want to kill a white-tailed deer. That transition happens. I must say, I really do love to hunt. I enjoy hunting. I think it's good for me. I enjoy getting to be out in creation, uh, see these critters that the Lord's made, how cool they are. They're interesting. The Lord's given us to... to manifest dominion over and you get to interact with them and see them in their natural habitat and it's really cool their sun comes up the wind blows all that's fascinating i love it i love everything about hunting i love the adrenaline that comes with hunting it's fun there's one thing i can't stand about hunting though i hate it it's the worst feeling that you could ever possibly have some of you will resonate with me on this because i've heard you describe it to me this week there is that moment sometimes when you're out there in the peace of the creation enjoying it you're maybe watching this critter you're thinking wow look at that majestic white-tailed deer and how cool it is and then all of a sudden out of the clear blue sky with absolutely no awareness of what you've done to create the problem it suddenly dawns on that animal that it's not alone and you know you're the problem, and that animal knows you're the problem, and when it figures out either what you are or where you're at, you might as well go back to the truck. It's over. So you've gone from like just peacefully enjoying creation and all that good stuff to all of a sudden now you feel like you're on trial for capital murder because you're, you're sitting there and you're nervous and you know this deer's got you pegged and you're just like sweating just thinking about it. You're having to think through not moving, how much do I breathe? I got to breathe, but I can't breathe too much or this thing's going to see me. And if it catches you in the act of you making your move, like you're reaching to get a bow or you're trying to get your gun up, you're turning to get your bow and now it catches you. Now you're froze looking like a dummy for as long as it takes for your muscles to start shaking or for that animal to pick you off. And you, you're, and you're not like those animals, they got nothing but time. I'll just tell you that they had nothing but time. They ain't got jobs. Ain't got no families to get home to. You know they don't sleep because you got pictures of them on your trail camera at 2 a.m. in the morning eating the corn. So they have nothing to do. They're just going to stare you down. And it's a miserable feeling. And you're just sitting there saying, how do I avoid getting busted? How do I avoid giving away that I'm guilty? This deer knows I've come into its habitat with bad intentions, and I don't want to get busted. It's a miserable feeling, not a good feeling, trying to dodge your guilt. I just want to assure you this morning, you don't have to worry about that. You will not have that feeling this morning. You will not encounter, hunter or not, you will not encounter that this morning because Jesus knows you're guilty. Jesus has already busted you and he wants you to know that he knows you're guilty. He wants you to know that he's already busted you and so here's what his word says. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. 
And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Pray with me. Oh, Lord, uh, we right now need your help to hear your word. Lord, would you show us what you've stored up for us in it? As you continue to teach us what it's like to walk in the way of discipleship, Lord, give us wisdom and understanding and insight to see uh, what you've laid up for us in your word right now by the power of your spirit who inspired it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, if you'll recall, last week I said that this whole section, the antitheses, the not this, but that section that's going to take us through the rest of chapter 5, it's really one thing. All the different subsections of it, there's six subsections, they're doing the same thing. Jesus starts by saying, hey, you've heard it said, or y'all have heard it said, like your Bible ought to read, y'all have heard it said, but I say to you, so not this, but this. Not what the, the prophets, not, what the, not, not the way that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are interpreting the law and the prophets, but this is what the law and the prophets actually mean. They're doing the same thing. So last week, what Jesus did is he took anger and exposed that for you. So you've got people out there saying stuff like, hey, you know what's a sin? Murdering somebody. And Jesus says, yeah, you know what's actually a sin? Like the anger behind that murder that might bend itself in murder. It might go on to bend itself in you insulting somebody or calling them a fool. Like that's a sin too, because <laughs> that really is the root sin. So Jesus has said, I'm not coming to abolish the law and the prophets, but I'm coming to fulfill it or to give you the fuller sense of it to show you what it really means. Like, what the Lord really intends for you to get out of this thing. He showed that to us in anger last week, and he's going to move on to do the same exact thing in another area of sin uh, this week. He's going to go on to do that in the area of lust this week. And so he starts off the same way that he starts off last week. Verse 27, uh, you or y'all have heard it said, y'all have heard that it was said, you shall not commit Adultery, and surely you've heard it said that. But the, law, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, this is their standard. Hey, y'all should not be an adultery-committing people. You shouldn't be an adulterous people. You should not be a people who are characterized by sleeping with people that you're not married to. That's the standard. And Jesus says, that's not the standard. That's not it. There's more to the standard than that. But surely it has been said because it really is written. Just like last week, it really was written that you shall not commit murder. This week, it's been written you shall not commit adultery. It's written in an interesting place. In Exodus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, in both places, it comes after that command, y'all shall not commit murder. So you shouldn't commit murder. And Jesus goes on to show there's ways to commit murder without murdering. Next command, shall not commit adultery. And Jesus is here to show there's plenty of ways for you to commit the root sin of adultery without actually committing adultery. So y'all have heard it said, you've heard it said you shouldn't be an adultery committing people. You shouldn't be that type of people. You shouldn't be the type of people characterized by sleeping on people you're not married to. But I say to you, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Plenty of ways for you to commit adultery without actually committing adultery. Just like there's plenty of ways for you to manifest anger without actually murdering somebody. As we come to verse 28, what's it saying? What is, what is going on here? What's the root sin? Last week it was I'm violating the image of God in somebody by murdering them or by insulting them or by calling them a fool. What's the root sin this week? What is desiring something for yourself apart, apart from God's design for it? That's the root sin this week. Which means, here's why this is, the, here's why this is contrary to discipleship. 
It is you in that moment, in that expression, not living your life unto God. All through the Sermon on the Mount, beginning of chapter five, this is what it means to live unto God, what it means to live my life aimed at God, what it means to do everything that I do in consciousness of how that interacts with God and how that points to his glory or how that detracts from his glory. And if I'm a disciple, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a Christ follower, what I wanna do is aim my life at the glory of God because that's how Jesus aimed his life. And so when we come and we have this desire that we harbor or that we vent or that we express this contrary to God's design for us, we are failing to live our lives unto God. Thomas, what is this sin? Can you clarify it for me? What does it mean to look at a woman with lustful intent? Like what, what is going on there? What's the principle that is true once and for all that helps me understand what this sin actually is? Can you spell it out for me? Sure, I can. It is sin to harbor a desire for a sinful relationship. The sinful relationship is obviously sin. And Jesus says, so too is harboring the desire for that sinful relationship. Same sin. It's the same root sin. You, in that moment, even internally, even in your mind, have said, I don't really care what God says. I will not live my life, even my thought life, unto God. I'm pleased to to desire things for myself that God doesn't desire for me. And so you prove you're not willing to live your life unto God. And so you prove you're not walking in the way of a disciple. Not living like a Christian, not living like a Christ follower. Maybe we should clarify some terms. Let's clarify some terms in verse 28. Maybe the first one that we should clarify, the first one, if you are the type of person who's going to come to this text and say, is there a back door? Is there a way for me to get out of this thing? Maybe the first term you could start with is the term woman. Why does it say woman? I'm not... I'm not a man. Maybe this doesn't apply. Jesus is talking about men who have a desire for women. Like, maybe this doesn't apply to me. Nope. Don't be so pharisaical. It applies to you. There's a principle behind this. It applies to you. Jesus is talking about, why is he saying woman? Why is he talking about women? Because he's talking to his disciples, who at this point in time, we're very aware, are men. We've just been reminded that when the Sermon on the Mount started. And so with Jesus, as he thinks about his disciples and how they would be tempted to act and harbor these sinful desires for a relationship with somebody they ought not have a relationship with, when he thinks about how they're going to be tempted by that, he expects them to be tempted by women. So that's why he's talking to why the word woman is here. So if you've come here and you're a woman and you say, well, I can't commit this sin because this is talking about men who harbor desire for women. Again, don't be so pharisaical. We're not coming here to make a checklist. The Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees have come here to make a checklist. The principle is it is sin to harbor a desire for a sinful relationship completely irrespective of what gender you are. But Thomas, I've got a study Bible at my house. And my study Bible at my house says this word right here for a woman, when it's used in the New Testament, it typically means wife. So it's got to be a married woman, right? Wrong. <laughs> no, no, we're not here. We're not here to make a checklist. We're here to see what is the principle that God is commanding us in his word if we're going to live in accordance with his will. And if we're going to live in accordance with his will, he does not want us to harbor a desire for a sinful relationship. It has nothing to do with whether the woman's married or whether the woman's not married. It's not about that. Don't be so pharisaical. Well, Thomas, I at least got to be married, right? Because if I'm not married and she's not married, it's not adultery. 
That's not, that's not what Jesus is in his sin. Wrong again. Jesus is highlighting here. He's showing us really clearly that is, in terms of the way he's looking at this thing, what the law and the prophets means is that to harbor a desire is the same as committing the act. It is the same root sin as committing the act. So if you say, okay, well, it wouldn't be adultery. Great. You're right. It would be fornication. To harbor desire for an unmarried person, to harbor desire towards another unmarried person for a sinful relationship would then be to commit the same sin as fornication, which the Bible goes on to make really clear is also sin. So no, you don't get out on that disclaimer either. What about lustful intent? Thomas, what does lustful intent mean? Look at a woman with lustful intent. Is Jesus saying it's wrong for me to have attraction to people of the opposite sex? No. He's clearly not saying this. This is part of God's good design. This is how marriage works itself out. God's created us and wired us to have, uh, have an attraction towards people of the opposite sex. This is part of God's good plan. What is outside of the will of God is for you to take that attraction and let it not lead to marriage. So for those of us who are created and we have this desire and we feel it pretty strongly, we have attraction towards someone of the opposite sex, what What that's doing in us should be spurring us on towards marriage, to seek a godly spouse. And once we acquire that godly spouse, to vent that attraction in that relationship and in that relationship only. Anything outside of that is sin. So no, it's not wrong to have attraction for someone else. That attraction, you just got to know where it's going. You got to know what it's doing. So if we come to that and we say we're going to vent that attraction in other ways, We're going to vent that attraction apart from God's design, God's good plan in marriage. Again, you're not living your life unto God. You're desiring things for yourself that God doesn't desire for you because God's design for you is for that attraction to work itself out in a one man, one woman covenant made before God. That's what that sin is. To harbor a desire for a sinful relationship. Okay, great. So, God, I, I, guys, I've tried to cover that every way I could think up this week. If you still think there's a back door there, you let me know. But I think we've shut all the back doors. Like, you're not getting out of this. Like, this, this is it's wrong to harbor a sinful desire. So then we've got to ask the question, right, what do you want me to do about it? Great, Jesus, you've convicted me. You've clearly shown me that I'm condemned. I don't think there's anybody left in the room who's not condemned here under, under verse 27, verse 28. So now, like, what do I need to, Jesus, what do you want me to do about it? And the answer is, whatever it takes. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It is better for you, it would be better for you to remove one of your body parts, then your whole body be cast into hell. I told you last week when we were talking about hell. I told you it's coming back. I told you it's coming back really, really soon. It's the same word that we dove into a little bit last week. And here it is. What's it doing here? Why is it back? Why is it back so soon? If you remember last week, if you can think back seven days ago, hell was there because Jesus' point was, if you have this root sin of anger, that would lead you to vent that anger in something like insulting someone or calling someone a fool. It's the same root sin as the sin of murdering someone. And we know that murder earns us hell. Like if we murder somebody, we don't have to wonder whether or not the Bible says we've earned hell. Yes, you have. So if you've had that anger that's led you to insult or to call someone a fool, Jesus says, 
Same thing. Same root sin gets the same punishment. Same point is there this morning, right? Surely I'm just going to assume, maybe we, maybe we need to do a biblical theology on this sometime, but I'm just going to assume that you know that adultery earns hell as well. It's the next command after you shall not murder. It's you shall not commit adultery. So if you come to this and you say, you've committed adultery, well, you've earned for yourself hell. And Jesus' point is, the root sin rule applies. Having this lustful desire, this wrongful desire for a sinful relationship, a relationship that God says is sin. Like if you harbor that desire, you've committed the same root sin as if you would have committed adultery. And so if adulterers have earned for themselves hell, guess what? People who've committed the sin of desiring a sinful relationship have earned for themselves hell. It's the same exact logic as last week. So that's why hell is back on the scene. The root sin in all this is that you're not living your life unto God. If you've ever harbored a desire for a sinful relationship, you've earned for yourself hell. And you say, Thomas, that's radical. Thomas, that's, there's no way. Thomas, have you ever gone through puberty? Thomas, you, do you understand my hormones? Yes, I've gone through puberty. No, I don't understand your hormones. But the point is, it's supposed to be radical. Jesus knows it's radical. It's not a surprise to Jesus that this thing is radical. Jesus knows it's a radical command, and he knows. He knows you can't do it. And that's kind of the point. Jesus knows. He knows you have a sinful nature. He knows that you're a human being who's been born into sin, a sinful nature that you inherited from your great, great, great granddaddy, Adam, who passed it all the way down to you. And as soon as you develop your own ability to act, guess what? You act on that sinful nature that you have, and you cannot. There's no possible way, the way Jesus is interpreting the law, filling up what the law and the prophets actually mean, there is not a chance that you go wire to wire from birth to death and do not fail to live all of your life unto God in some way, shape, or form. You will fail. You can't do it. So what you've earned for yourself is hell. You deserve hell. Jesus wants you to know that. That's the point. Jesus wants you to get it. Why does he want you to get it? Let's remember what he's doing. Let's remember who he's interacting with here. He's interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are saying, If you do good enough, you'll be all right. It's on you. It's up to you. It's about what you bring to the table. If you can manage to look at this checklist and check all the right boxes and not check the other boxes, you're good. Haven't murdered somebody? Check. You're good. Haven't committed adultery? Check. You're good. And Jesus says, no, you're not good. That's not the point. It's not about what you can do. Because guess what? The way that the law actually is intended to be read, you have violated it. It's impossible for you not to, buy, to violate it. You have committed sin. You deserve hell. You should not trust in yourself. And so when you come to verse 28, you don't have to do any like interpretive gymnastics to try to get yourself out of it. Don't, don't do that. Don't try to turn your Bible upside down or at a 45 degree angle to make a way for you not to be guilty of violating verse 28. Like you've done it. The point is you're guilty. And Jesus wants you to know that we're all guilty, every one of us. Like, we're, every one of us is guilty. We're all in this together. We all deserve hell. That's why Jesus just interpreted the law the way he's done it. Like, we're in this thing together. Now, I assume right now, at this moment, I've created two groups of people in our congregation. 
There are those of you who are comforted by knowing we're all in this together. Like the pastor's violated 28 and deserves to go to hell too. We're all in this thing together. That comforts some of you. Because some of you are saying, I'm a sinner, and it's good to look around and know that everybody else is a sinner too. I'm assuming there's some of you who feel that way. I'm assuming there's some of you who are probably worried about the fact I've said it that way. Like you're worried about the fact I've said we're all in this together, that I'm going to turn around and say, therefore, sin's not that big of a deal. And I think we've reached like this really exceptional, unique moment on this day, a day where we're about to get together and eat a feast and celebrate me being a pastor. I'm going to get to actually make everybody happy right now while I stand on the Bible. Like, what a great day. What a time to be alive. This doesn't happen all that often. But this is right. We are all in this together, and sin is super-duper serious. Jesus is saying, we are all in this together. We all deserve to go to hell. And then when he turns around and does, instead of minimizing sin, he just ups the ante for everybody. You are in sin. You are a sinner. You do deserve to go to hell. And here's what I want you to do about it. Verse 29, if your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Pretty radical. Gouge my eye out. Cut my hand off. It's better. Jesus is saying it would be better for you to take out your eye than to continue to harbor a relationship, a desire for a sinful relationship. Jesus is saying it's better for you to cut your hand off than to continue to harbor a desire for a sinful relationship. It's better for that than for you to go on in lust. Because if you go on in lust, what's going to happen is you're going to be condemned to hell. So it'd actually be better, you'd be better off removing part of your body than doing that. Thomas, you're telling me Jesus wants me to cut my off. He wants me to cut off my arm and gouge out my eye like you still have an eye. You still have your hands. I thought you were serious about this thing. You ain't that serious about this thing. Okay, no, Jesus does not want you to literally do that. You know how I know that? Because he's talking to a bunch of sinful men on the side of this mountain and they made it to the end with eyes and hands and he never condemned them. He didn't, he didn't, they, they, they made it to the end that way. Now, this is hyperbole. This is, this is an intentional overstatement for the point of making a point. And the point is, sin's a big deal. Sin is really, really serious. Maybe at this point you're saying, hey, okay, so if Jesus has condemned sin, verse 28, and says it's a big deal, even sin that happens in my head, like even sin that's happening in my thought life, how can I fight sin that I commit in my head? Like if it's going on internally in me from my heart, how do I, how do I fight it? And this really, is the point. Like this really is why you wouldn't gouge your eye out or cut your arm off because it wouldn't fix the problem. Like the problem is it's something happening internally in you. This is where the sin is coming from. So what do I do? What do I do to fight sin that's happening in my head? Well, I just propose to you this is a practical way to functionally gouge out your eye and to functionally cut your arm off. Maybe you should take control of what's going on in your head. If you don't like what's happening in your head, maybe you should take control of what's getting into it. There might be some of you who would leave here today and say, you know what, I probably need to get off social media. I made that decision a long time ago. You say, but Thomas, you don't understand. I got all these friends. I got all these people I need to keep up with. I know I've never met half of them. I know that the other half of them, when I see them in the grocery store, I go down a different aisle so that I don't have to talk to them. But they're my friends. You don't get it. You don't understand, right? 
And yeah, sometimes while I'm on there catching up with my friends, somebody of the opposite sex does post something that I probably look at a little too long or meditate on a little bit too much. But is it really that big of a deal? If your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Maybe you're the type of person, you sleep with your phone right beside you. Maybe that gets you in jams. Maybe late at night you do dumb things on your phone. Stop sleeping when you can reach your phone. Yeah, but, but Thomas, I need my phone. Like, what if I need to, I'm going to read the news as soon as I wake up. I got to be able to grab my alarm and cut it off. Um, what if I need to lay in bed and text some people? What if somebody breaks in in the middle of the night and I got to call the police right now? If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And don't give me that. Ain't none of us rolling like that. Ain't nobody in this church, somebody broke in your house, first thing you do is calling somebody. Right? You ain't not, and that is none of y'all's first instinct. I'm going to call the police. So don't give me that. Maybe there's some of you. Maybe there's just some of you who, like, need to give somebody the password to your computer. Maybe you don't need a computer. Maybe you can ditch your laptop. Maybe you can use the computer in the family room. Like, I don't know, but you know. Thomas, that ain't real convenient. Yeah, that ain't the point. The point is sin is serious, and if, you don't, if, you're, if you're content to let it hang around and pretend that it's not serious, you're not going to be content with where that leads you. Maybe there's some of you who just need to have the courage to look at your spouse and say, honey, I love you, but we don't need to watch that movie. Honey, I love you, but next time that commercial comes on, can we just change the channel? Yeah, but Thomas, that's awkward. I, I got gotcha. you. It, it might be. What I'm saying is that in the battle for the eternal state of your soul, we don't get to pull punches. We got to do whatever it takes. What does it take? We got to do whatever it takes. The point of this, the point of the whole thing really is, hey, how do I live? How do I live? What, like, what does it look like to live every ounce of my life under God? What would it mean for me to get so serious about living for the glory of God that I would actually hate Everything in my life that keeps me from doing that well. The things in my life that rob God of his glory, like how do I get rid of them? How do I live everything in my life? Aim the whole thing, every ounce of it, lived unto God, aimed at God. So what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And what he's just said is that must own, the commitment to live our lives unto God must own the way that we look at folks we aren't married to. That's what just happened, 27 through 30. That living my life unto God would own the way I look at people who aren't my spouse. And living my entire life unto God must also own the way I look at people I am married to. It must also own the way you look at your spouse. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, so they're missing it. They're missing it on this whole lust thing. They think when you've crossed the line is when you sleep with somebody, and Jesus says, when you cross the line is when you think about sleeping with somebody. So they missed it. They're, they're, they're out of the ballpark on this whole how we look at people we aren't married to thing. You know where else they're missing it? In marriage. <laughs> They've also managed to botch this thing in marriage. So Jesus again says, hey, he starts off, y'all have heard it said. 
Y'all have heard that it was said. It was also said. And then they go on to quote, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so here's the it is written part behind the it's, this is what has been said part. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, it'll come back up again in Matthew chapter 19. We'll kind of dig into it and hang out in it a little bit more there. But here's what you need to know this morning. In the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is giving instructions here. And the instructions that he gives are for a man who's divorced a wife. So let's here you go. A man's divorced his wife, and then the wife that he's divorced goes on and marries someone else. And then Deuteronomy chapter 24, in those first four verses, it forbids the original man from remarrying that woman in the event the new guy goes on to divorce her or he dies. And it actually says, the Lord says, that's an abomination to me, and this is a desecration to the land. Why an abomination? Why a desecration? Well, if you're willing to receive back this woman, what it's showing is that you arbitrarily divorced her in the first place. Marriage doesn't seem to mean that much to you anyhow. And so why in the world would you remarry this woman whom you have made enter into a covenant with another man? The whole thing's your fault in the first place. So stop sinning and don't do that. That's the point of Deuteronomy uh, 24, those first four verses. You read that, chew on that this week. You disagree with me, want to talk about it, great. I'll meet you in my office. I'll make us a big old pot of coffee. We'll talk about it. The coffee's going to be good. Nobody does theology uh, without caffeine. Mormons are trying to do that. They hadn't figured out Jesus is God yet, so it doesn't work. Right? But speaking of, speaking of bad theology, speaking of bad theology, the reason Jesus said that this is what y'all are hearing said it's because the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes have looked at this thing. That Deuteronomy 24, I just described to you. Like it's, it's intended to like constrain divorce and remarriage and to put limits on it and to keep you from doing this. It's trying to limit it. The Bible's never talking about divorce like it's a good thing or it's detached from sin in some kind of way, shape, or form. They've come to that and they've said, yeah, you give her a certificate of divorce, you do whatever you want to do. Uh, yeah, you, pretty, yeah, you can change spouses at this point in time, the way they're interpreting law. You can change spouses back then easier than you can buy a new iPhone today. You just give her a piece of paper and put her out and you're good. You just tell her she can marry somebody else and you have no more responsibilities to this covenant that you've made. You're out of it. All you gotta do, that's what Moses said, right? That's what the law and the prophet said. Just hand her a piece of paper and get her out of here. That's what the law is teaching, right? Enter the true and better Moses. And the true and better Moses who we've been waiting for, the one who accurately speaks for God because he himself is God, here he comes and he says, but I say to you, not that, but this, uh, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced, divorced woman commits adultery. What do the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they botch it there or what? You got them saying this is no big deal and Jesus is saying, you divorce your wife, you're making her commit adultery. You marry somebody else, you're committing adultery. The irreconcilable difference there. But Jesus is saying, here I am. I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus, fulfill it for us. Tell us what it means. What does it mean? Well, he's really saying two things. I say to you, whoever, to the, everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. That's thing number one. Divorce equals make her commit adultery. 
Some people will come along and make a really big deal out of this exception clause right here, except on the ground of sexual immorality. I don't make a really big deal out of the exception clause because I'm just here to tell you, if your wife has already committed sexual immorality while you were in a marriage covenant with her, she has made herself an adulteress. You don't have to worry about making her adulteress. That's what this is saying. You can't make a woman who's already committed adultery commit adultery by divorcing her. That's what Jesus is here uh, to clarify. We'll pick that up again in Matthew chapter 19. We'll hang out a little bit uh, more there where that's more to the point of the text. I don't think that's the point of the text this morning. I will say, women, while I'm here, if it feels like I'm picking on you or I've been picking on you all morning, I'm not picking on you. I'm just trying to use the language Jesus is using, and I'm going to keep using the language that Jesus uh, is using so that I don't confuse myself or anybody else, right? But know that we are, we're condemning men who would do this here too, right? There, nobody's off the hook here. But again, the reason the word woman is here, I'm not just arbitrarily picking it out, is because Jesus is talking to his disciples, Jesus, Jesus is talking to a group of men, primarily at this point in time, who would have this type of relationship with women. And I'll, I'll shoot you straight as well. Like, Jesus is also talking at a point in time in the first century where it was absolutely inconceivable in the Jewish world that a woman could initiate a process for divorce and it work. Like, that, 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 didn't, that didn't happen in the first century. Like, the first century was like 60 waves of feminism ago. And don't, I'm not saying that that's, like, all a bad thing. I want women to have rights. I'm not against women's rights. I'm not the president of the local chapter of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. That's not me. Don't hear me saying that. But this is just why this word's here. This is why we're talking uh, like this. But back to the text. The, the point of the text really is... This, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card here. So even if you read this and make a big deal out of, okay, well, if she commits sexual immorality, like, that's, that's, not a, that's not a free pass to divorce your spouse. She's not saying you have to turn around and divorce your spouse. She's not saying this is just like an easy-out, no-brainer type deal. Like, that's, that's not the point. The point is that we would work like a dog to have one man, one woman relationships for life and what God has joined together. Let no man put asunder because this is the way God has created it and wired it from the very, very beginning. One more thing while we're here. If you're reading the King James Bible, you've already noticed it. But the word here translated sexual morality in the ESV and the CSB and others is translated fornication in the King James Version. And so there is some dispute here to actually the sexual morality that we're talking about. Does it happen after the marriage is consummated or before the marriage is consummated? And if you would come to me and say, well, Thomas, that's really, that's really silly because you would have to be married and have to have your marriage consummated in order to get a divorce. So I just point you back to this little story we ran into in chapter one. There was this guy named Joseph. And he was betrothed to this lady named Mary. Maybe you've heard of her. And he was wanting to put her out because he had really good reasons to believe that Mary was running around on him. And Matthew said what he was contemplating doing was divorce. So you just chew on that, think about that again. We'll be back there in Matthew chapter 19. Like that's coming. But this is not like, we're not lowering the standard here. Jesus is heightening the standard. There's not a free pass. There's not a get out of jail free card. There's not a way to do this thing right. There's no right way because God's design is for one man and one woman to have a covenant marriage that goes from marriage to death. And what God has joined together, God's gonna end, not you. It's the point of the text. So we must work like dogs to have one man, one woman marriages for life. We would take the covenant of marriage seriously. This is what it looks like. 
for us to live our lives unto God in marriage. And, second thing, second half of that verse. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I'll say the obvious thing over there. There's no exception clause there. So if you were one of those people that made a big deal out of the exception clause, getting you out of it in the first part of the verse, well, now it's gone. And so you could say something like it's implied, so I just bring it down. But if you bring it down with you, what, what you'd have to end up saying is, whosoever has married a divorced woman, unless she was a woman who committed adultery on her previous spouse, also commits adultery. And you say, well, nah, Thomas, like maybe he could have committed, he could have committed adultery and she could have divorced him. No, she couldn't have. Because we're in the first century. She can't divorce him. So if you think you've like read the exception clause, this has given you some big ground to just go and do whatever you want to do in your marriage as long as somebody else has sinned against you or slept with somebody else or walked out on you or abandoned you or been mean to you or actually abused you in some way, shape, or form. Jesus is saying, no, it's not an immediate out. It's not an immediate no-brainer out. It's continuing to say to us, we would work like dogs to protect our marriages. We would work like dogs to have one man, one woman marriages for life. And what God has put uh, together, we would never try to separate. Thomas is radical. That's the point. Jesus intends to punch you in the gut. Jesus intends for you to say, wow. Jesus intends for you to say, God's design is much different than the way I tend to think. God's design is much different than the way the world tends to work. The world doesn't do this. The world doesn't come, like, they've actually, even the people of Jesus' day have lowered the bar here. They probably had their life short, get a divorce, billboards up in Jerusalem, just like we got them up in Rock Hill. They've cheapened it. And Jesus says, not God's design. Not God's intent. Wants us to have one man, one woman marriages for life. It's an emphatic statement to work like a dog. For one man, one woman, for life, marriages that have no back door in them. Now, uh, I'm not ignorant of whom I'm talking to this morning, any way, shape, or form. I know that we have divorced people here. I know that we have people who've been divorced and remarried here. I know we have people who've married divorced people here. I'm aware of all that. And I just want to say two things to you this morning. Number one, I think we could get the microphone and pass it around. I could hand it to every single one of you and you could testify that yes, if I'm a born again child of God, there was something sinful in that marriage. There was sin when I made that covenant. I shouldn't have made that covenant or there was sin somewhere in the middle of that covenant or there was sin involved in how that covenant ended. If you're a born again child of God, I presume I could hand you the microphone and you could say, yep, there was sin somewhere. That wouldn't be very hard to do. Second thing that I can say to you is we're not trying to get out of guilt. We're not trying to die as guilt. Jesus wants you to know you're guilty. It's the same point that we just made in verse 28. You are guilty. This is not about your ability to check the boxes off. No, you're guilty. So you say, I come here, I've come here, and the way I see this, like I'm condemned and deserve to go to hell, and I'm going to point to the text and say, it says I am too. It says me and you are in this thing together. And it turns around and says sin's really serious. We are in this together. We do deserve hell. We have earned hell. And so what we better stop doing is thinking that me or you are going to fix the problem. We're not going to fix the problem. We can't fix the problem. So what do we do? What do we do? We fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight in every area of our lives to live unto God. And we've got to fight like our lives depend on it because they do. If you look at this and say we're all in this thing together, 
we are all sinners. We all deserve to go to hell, and I can't, I can't ever live in perfection, and I'm just going to kick back and take it easy and do what I want to do. You're living in what's called unrepentant sin, and Jesus says that's the only type of sin he's not interested in forgiving. So if you would come to this and look at this and say, I'm condemned and I don't care, you cannot be saved like that. There's no salvation in unrepentant sin. Jesus' command, after he's accused us and made us guilty and rendered us guilty of sin, his command is that we would be a repentant people, a people who turn away, a people who fight like dogs to live unto God in every area of our lives, whether we're married, whether we're unmarried, whatever's going on, in anger and lust and all these different things we're going to explore in the rest of chapter 5. So what do you do? You fight. Why would you fight? Because the one who says you're guilty, the one who holds the gavel, the one who is the just judge, who is coming to judge the living and the dead, he's made a way for you to be reconciled to your creator. God, because of his love for us, desiring to show his mercy towards us, he sent Lord Jesus to live in our place and to die and take our punishment in our place and to rise in our place to prove that it worked and to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he presently intercedes for us. He's done all of that so that me and you might be reconciled to God. The point this morning is not that you're guilty. The point is that you desperately need Jesus. You are guilty, which means you desperately need Jesus. And Jesus, he himself has done everything necessary for you to be reconciled to God. And you will be reconciled to God if and only if you turn from your sin and you love him and you trust him and you treasure him and you live for him. The way of the disciple, the way of the Christian, the way of the Christ follower is that we would live all of our lives unto God because Jesus loved us and lived for us and died for us and rose for us and is coming again for us. Don't come here this morning and try to deny your guilt. Admit your guilt and take hold of Jesus. Pray with me. Oh Lord, uh, we thank you. We thank you that your wisdom is so much wiser than our wisdom. That as you do things and command things that we would never do and never think and never command and never expect ourselves to live up to, Lord, you do. You've condemned us all this morning. There's none of us walking away from here without blood on our hands. Lord, you've also made a way for every single one of us to be reconciled to you. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus didn't just come to teach us. Jesus came to save us. So, Lord, we thank you for what he's done to save us. We thank you, Lord, that he's actually lived in our place. And as we've failed to keep the perfect righteousness of your law, he's done it. And he's done it on our behalf. Lord, if there are those here this morning who who aren't trusting in that, who don't treasure him, who, who don't care about living their lives unto God, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do and convict them of that by the power of your spirit, that you would cause them to realize this actually is a very urgent thing. Lord, that anything we do with trust in ourselves will always fail us. So, Lord, Make us all a people who trust Jesus. Make us trust him more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to have a brief hymn response. I'll be on the front worshiping with you all if anyone would like to pray with me or talk to me.